it's, it ensnares you in this world of, of greed, of filth, of sin, and kind of doesn't let you go until the very last pages of the book. Just a heads up, these words and opinions are mine and my own, much like Gollum and the One Ring. We'll attempt to keep most of this as spoiler-free as possible, but if you have any questions about the material in this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to doublemoonletters at gmail.com. Thank you, enjoy the podcast. Allons-y! Welcome to Letters from a Double Moon. My name is Nahima, and thank you for your presence here tonight. So how have you all been? It's been about two weeks. Um, two weeks of me hardly trying to finish a book, um, but keeping you all in mind. Um, I'm glad to see that you seem to have enjoyed my last episode um, about An Ocean Away. It certainly was a joy to create, and I'm happy to be here with you all again tonight. So, what have I been doing apart from reading? Um, essentially, not much. But I did get past that point in um, Breath of the Wild in the Zelda game, uh, where I was stuck previously. I kind of I got help basically to, to see what I was doing wrong and essentially I was doing everything wrong so I got past that bit and played for about 10 minutes and put it down which is my habit usually I'll just play for about 10 minutes and then get bored um I've also been doing a bit of crafting I did some crochet and made myself a witch's hat which is always cozy um and yeah it was it's really cute so that's basically what I've been doing around reading. Um, I hope you all have been keeping well in the meantime. And essentially what we're going to talk about today is a book that, like I mentioned last podcast towards the end, um, this one I've always kind of had this childish kind of hatred for it. Um, I've never really grown out of the, uh, I don't know what it is, like a feeling of derision I suppose. Yeah, a feeling of derision towards uh, a book that not necessarily um, is bad. Like, it's not a bad book. I don't think there's ever such a thing as a bad book. They all have an audience in their own way, and they all have their own kind of quirks. And, and essentially, it just means that, you know, one person might not like a book, but one other you know, might adore it. So it's not necessarily the best thing to kind of hold on to a hatred for something that a lot of people enjoyed. Um, but essentially this book is the author's only novel um, and kind of strays into a realm of Victorian, I'd like to say, gothic. Um, not too sure who was reigning England at the time <laughs> the, this book was written, but essentially, um, yeah, it's just about a man and 
his love for himself. Uh, a bit like Narcissus uh, at his pool where he looks into the mirror and he, well, the, the pool and he sees his face and falls in love with himself. So essentially, this book is basically about, um, yeah, old mate's Narcissus and then he kind of, he's an innocent, impressionable um, youth and he kind of falls into this trap of seduction. Um, well, he's essentially seduced by the dark side, we'll say. Uh, and essentially, he just falls hard and fast. And that's essentially the, the book. So the book that I'll be talking about today is The Picture of Dorian Gray. Let's hook the book for you, shall we? So here we are. We are going to talk about Oscar Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, it was written in 1891, and my edition was published somewhere around 2003, but I don't believe I've had it for that long. I think I've had it for about 15 years, maybe. Uh, essentially, what it's about is it's about a young man whose portrait um, he sits for an artist and gets his portrait painted. Um, and he is so enthralled with the end results. And the artist is kind of crazed with um, how good it looks. The young man, Dorian Gray, um, he essentially becomes so upset that he's never going to look as good as he does in that portrait. Um, that he kind of makes like a pact with the universe and... After that, he kind of just, yeah, he kind of just descends into madness in a way, um, and essentially he just never ages because of this pact with the universe. They hear him and they say, okay, we'll, we'll grant your wish. And so he never ages, but the portrait ages, which is this weird kind of, uh, element to the story where he looks upon the portrait and sees the sins that he has committed um, and then eventually it just kind of consumes him. Obviously not going to go too much into detail but because this book has been uh, kind of published for about 200 years I'm sure many people have read it but still for those who haven't read it um, we'll leave some of this to your imagination and for you to pick it up and maybe have a read. So essentially this the writing in the picture of Dorian Gray is exquisite. It is it, it was I think what made me um not like it in the beginning when I first started to read it was because the writing is a little bit heavy, but it's heavy with this heady um perfume almost um in the ink and it kind of makes you feel for me it made me feel a full, like falling asleep, but um for a lot of people, they find that there's a lot of description of like beauty, um, and it kind of is elevated above like the filth and the sin that you, you know, the streets of London. But essentially, the writing kind of reflects like a heady perfume. It's really odd kind of to describe, but it essentially just yeah, a bit heavy. Um, it's sumptuous, it's eloquent, it's full verbose, it's vocabulary, you know, it's full of words. 
that are a little bit archaic sometimes, but it's full of like beautiful words that describe, you know, the beauty hiding in amongst the sin. Uh, it, this story could be full of allegory in that it could be, you know, writing about, yeah, like synonyms or, you know, it could just be like it's reflecting one thing, but in fact he's secretly hidden, Oscar Wilde has secretly hidden a sort of meaning into the writing. Um, I think I'm taking it at face value though, and it just seems to be like kind of a a tale with a moral, um, and essentially we can leave it at that. There is a gothic tinge to the story that I actually loved. So I um, sort of fell into gothic literature a few years back when I was editing a an Australian gothic anthology for um, an imprint at my university, which I might talk about at a later stage, who knows? But essentially, yeah, gothic literature has its own kind of unique spin to it and its own unique flavour in a way. And it's, I'm so here for it at the moment. So I'm pretty, I was pretty obsessed with this gothic tinge that this one had. And the story kind of explored all the facets of the human psyche. Um, but he didn't do it in a ham-fisted way or in a way that he wanted to like analyse everyone and make it a Jungian, Freudian kind of debate. He kind of just worms his way into your mind, Oscar Wilde that is, um, and kind of just plants this I- these ideas into your into your mind as you're reading, um, I guess, in a way. <laughs> and he, by exploring the facets of the human psyche, he kind of makes you want to look inward and kind of explore your own in a way and go, oh, Am I going to be, am I ever going to be as wild as a story in grey? Or am I safe? I don't know. Um, but this story definitely has to be Oscar's best. Like, this marks the turning point for his um, his genius. So, essentially, he has written a lot of comedy comedic plays. Um, and he's written quite a few um, short stories as well. Like, the... I believe it's called The Happy Prince um, and a couple of other, like, a couple of other short stories, um, crime ones potentially. Uh, probably should have looked at that before I started, but that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so essentially, apparently they used parts of this story um, as evidence against Oscar Wilde when he was up in a trial because he apparently was trying to sue someone and then they counter, um, maybe not sued, but they counter tried him and he went to jail for about two years, I believe before fleeing to Paris as in exile, essentially towards the end of his life. So yeah, there's a lot to this story that is just delicious. It's delightful. It's heady. It's, um, What's the word? It's like it, it's, it ensnares you in this world of, of greed, of filth, of sin, and kind of doesn't let you go until the very last pages of the book. So what I loved most of all about the picture of Dorian Gray is essentially like, of course, is the beginning. That's a wonderful place to start. So when the painting is revealed by Basil, um, the painter, his name's Basil, um, Horworth, I think, 
Oh, dear, I'm going to have to have a look, aren't I? Because I honestly wish I could remember off the top of my head. And also the fact that there's... Oh, Basil Hallward. There we go. He's the artist, and he kind of reveals the painting with a flourish, and everyone's just so um, amazed by how beautiful this painting looks. He's an Adonis. He's... There's a lot of Greek um, symbolism in this story that kind of bring it forward and elevate it to a certain level of nobility. Um, but then what I was going to say as well is that there's also, you know, lots of descriptions of like beautiful facets of nature, like flowers, they're beautiful, they're perfumed. Um, they give you joy. If you're given a bunch of flowers, doesn't that just make your day? Um, and so essentially it starts off like that with, um, you see through the eyes of the characters and you see this wonderful rose tinted, um, aspect to life. And that kind of slips away as you keep reading through the book, which is very interesting. And things are slowly warped, and I guess they decay after a time uh, as the book moves on. And that's another thing that I really appreciated, was the the slow drip, drip, drip of life kind of descending into this struggle and it essentially just reveals uh the end you know the the very core of what to do (laughs) no the very core of what not to do um and the very core of what happens when you essentially get seduced by the dark side so moral of the story essentially was don't be impressionable enough to warrant um you know, a descent into madness and, and, um, don't kill people essentially. Don't rob people of their lives, uh, and don't be cruel, I guess. Yeah. But, um, the dramatic ending as well really got me. I really found that enjoyable. I got a kick out of the, the, the finale. It kind of really revealed, um, yeah, the final morals and also the final, touches kind of just made it pop and it just made me laugh a little bit when I probably shouldn't have it's a bit of a maybe black humor but essentially it was very dramatic and the fact that the servants you know had to recognize him by his rings was kind of a nice touch um and another aspect that I really enjoyed was the dichotomy of Battle Hallwood on one end and then Lord I think his name's I think he's a lord, Henry Wootton on the other. So Henry essentially brings to Dorian a life, the hedonistic kind of side of London and the hedonistic side of life uh, and kind of drags him by the hair essentially down into this world um, where there's chaos, there's violence, there's death principally. Um, and Basil on the other end is kind of, he symbolises the good, he symbolises the happiness, the jovility that you kind of feel at the beginning of the book. And that stays with him throughout the whole uh, arc of his character. But essentially, with this pulling and toing and froing, essentially, between Basil and, and Henry, you kind of feel that really this this young lad, Dorian Gray, he's very impressionable. Um, and he's kind of like clay that an artist could easily mould into something beautiful. But in the end... I'll leave it up to you to decide where, what he kind of would look like. But essentially, um, 
which one would have succeeded in pulling him down the most or up for that matter um, is kind of a question that that you kind of are left feeling like what would it have been like had one pulled him down more than the other so let's say um, with his descent into into madness into chaos would it have been a different story had say Basil lifted him up and elevated him into godly status so yeah it's kind of like you could ask all these questions and you can ask all the um all the the what ifs about it and it might have lent itself to a completely different story or it would have lent itself to a completely different story but it might have just been more intriguing um in a way so essentially um that's basically what i loved most about the picture of dorian gray um i also really enjoyed I also really enjoyed the physical copy of my edition. Um, the front cover, it's a Penguin classic, and the front cover has a like a print of the Earl of Dalhousie, which was done in 1900, which is quite a while ago now. <laughs> but it's just an interesting portrait that kind of just changes as, the more you look at it. So I never actually noticed there's like some kind of red splotch on his face and his... He looks like the very essence of a dandy when you look at this man on the front cover. And the more he stares at you, the more you kind of feel like he he understands. Um, yeah, he understands the, perhaps the painter, or like he understands something profound about... Because you see that in his face. It's really peculiar. And I think they did a good job about you know, with picking this um, this portrait to be the front cover and to kind of bring you into the story of Dorian Gray. So, I mean, I know there's been many, many, many editions of the picture of Dorian Gray uh, printed and there's probably some beautiful gilt um, hard cop- hardcover copies of it out there. But I don't know, I just like this one. Uh, my little one from... <laughs> would have been printed around 2003. Like, yeah, that's essentially... I don't know. I like I prefer paperbacks sometimes because they're lighter and you can put them in your bag and they're not going to weigh a ton. Um, but yeah, essentially, there's. have I changed my mind about the picture of Dorian Gray? Now, I'm sure you're probably keen to know this. Have I changed my mind? But I think the answer is ultimately maybe, question mark. I did struggle a tiny bit here and there to read because it kind of weighs down a little bit on you, the story, um, and the writing particularly. But the writing is a product of its time and a product of its place. So obviously Oscar Wilde would have written this in a perfectly contemporary voice. Um, However, I'm spoiled for choice and I recognise a more modern contemporary kind of style of writing um, that might be a little bit easier to read at this stage than, say, something like dating from the 1800s, the 19th century. But having said that, um, I really did enjoy the beauty that this book is kind of bringing forward. And I enjoyed um, most of the characters, uh, the tragedies and all the Greek elements to the story. It kind of, even the mention of Shakespeare, I was very pleased because I love Shakespeare. I was very pleased to see that he had a love kind of for Shakespeare reflected into the story and snuck into there as well so yeah essentially 
I think my mind has been changed, but I don't, well, we'll say I don't hate it anymore. I don't hate this book. I don't actually, I'm not indifferent to it anymore. I feel like it could be a book that I can return to eventually um, once I've kind of let it cool down a bit. Um, But yeah, essentially, I think the moral of this story is um, when you have a, a book that you might not have liked, put it down for a few years, come back to it. Sometimes that helps. Um... But I think at this point in time, you know what we'll do. We're going to indulge me while I give thanks to Oscar Wilde for his contribution to the world of literature. So I'll start in a moment. Let me gather my thoughts. (laughs) Dear Oscar, first of all, let me say, wow. You've been sitting on my shelf for a good 15 years or so. And in that time, I've only ever scorned and avoided you. I don't know why we didn't gel in the beginning, but I'm glad I've grown up in a way. Grown out of that childish hatred for a book that made its way into the pantheon of classics. I wonder what it felt like to write this book at the time that you wrote it. It seems as though this work was one of your best, but also perhaps one of the hardest for you to write. And life must have been hard for you as indeed it is for most of us, regardless of the time we're in. But life trucks on, and beauty waxes and wanes, as you so wonderfully describe in your book. I hope that people will continue to read this, continue to love it, and through this, remember you and the struggles you went through. Despite everything, though, you've left a tremendous mark on the world, and we should be hard-pressed to forget you. So thank you. With an ever-loving heart, Nahima. So essentially today we've had a lovely chat about Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray and we've talked about its elements, its wonder, its headiness, its beauty um, and essentially the fact that I actually quite like it now instead of before when I was uh, pretty much just hating on it when I really shouldn't have. If you enjoyed today's episode, send us an email at doublemoonletters at gmail.com or leave a rating. It would be greatly appreciated. So what are we going to talk about next time? It's essentially going to be a flip from tonight's podcast, really. And it's a book that I actually adore beyond any other book. Or maybe not any other book, because it's, it's a bit hard at this point to kind of play favourites when you've got quite a few books that you love. Um, but this book essentially hooked me from the very first moments. I read an abridged version of it, um, and then I tracked down a full version of it, translated into English, and it was just, oh, it made my world. Yeah, so this next book is going to be a real journey, and I hope that you enjoy it. And in the meantime, I hope you have a lovely rest of your two weeks, and we will speak again soon. That's me for this episode, listeners. I hope you enjoyed my contribution to the world of lit podcasting. Until we read again, stay safe out there, wherever you might find yourself. Moon, moon, moon.